Welcome back to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, curator Charmaine To considers the transfer of pictorial photography to Singapore and how values associated with pictorialism were recoded within the local context. She focuses on how photography was incorporated into national narratives in the 1950s and 60s. Good afternoon, everyone. So as Tam um, mentioned earlier, I'm currently researching pictorial photography in Singapore for my PhD. Um, and while I was planning this talk, I thought I would actually just read out a chapter, but then I decided that that would be really too boring for a general audience. So what I've done is really try to um, arrange today's topic such that it's sort of more exhibition-based and around sort of um, certain photographers that we will see uh, both here in this gallery as well as in the Singapore permanent, permanent display downstairs. So I, I thought that, I mean, since we are sitting in front of these works, that I should really start today's talk by speaking about Lee Lim's work. So um, two years ago, before I went off to do my PhD, I actually um, acquired these set of works for the National Gallery. So this is just a small percentage of what we ultimately um, got. And it's a pity that you aren't able to see more of especially the last body of work. So you only see sort of two of these abstract works, but he actually made um, a very, very consistent and large number of these works in the 1980s, just towards the end of his life. So Lilim, for me, is quite um, a model photographer in the sense that uh, he, through his experience, we... I think can learn a lot about the photographic practice in Singapore in the 50s and 60s. Um, but he also was an exceptional photographer because unlike the majority of pictorial photographers in Singapore, he went on to really experiment and develop his practice beyond the kind of typical um, images you see, including um, something like this by Wu Ping Sing, which is also in the National Collection. So Lilim was born in China in 1931 and he moved to Malaysia with his family um, when he was very young. He became an apprentice in a photographic studio in Malaysia before he moved to Singapore in the early 50s. So he really picked up his um, technical skills as an apprentice in a studio. And this is a kind of a story that you see for quite a few different photographers in Singapore, and, and I'll talk a bit more about that later, like the kind of transfer of technical skills and knowledge that happened in Singapore pre-war as well as post-war. In Lilim's case, he learned a lot in the darkroom at this photographic studio, and then he moved to Singapore in the 50s, early 50s, where he became an assistant in another photographic studio in Singapore. And this was the period, the early 50s, where he started making personal artistic work. So before, in a studio kind of commercial setting, he would be, have been taking mainly studio portraits for um, usually rich, straight Chinese families. Although by the 40s and 50s, I mean, more middle-class families were also coming into the studio to take photos. But through the, through the, through the studio, you learn... I think a lot about um, darkroom methods, developing prints and so on, lighting and all. But it was in the 50s that you see that he starts making works like this. And the 50s was also the period where he joined the Singapore Camera Club. So the Singapore Camera Club had been set up in 1950. And it was a very important platform for photographers to meet other photographers and to really look at photography as an artistic 
uh, medium rather than just a commercial or documentary medium. And this particular work was Lilim's, um, I guess, the, the earliest body of works. It belonged to a, a body of work that he submitted to an exhibition in Singapore. Um, and I've written down the details. So the work is called Ripple Reflection, and it was submitted to the sixth open photography exhibition in Singapore, organized by the Singapore Art Society. More importantly, this was also um, submitted and accepted for the London Salon. So this was sent to London and exhibited in London. And it was also reproduced in photographs of the year. Um, don't think anyone here will probably be familiar with Photograms of the Year, but Photograms of the Year was published um, in London by the um, London Salon. And it basically it was an annual publication that reproduced the best photographs internationally. Um, and the fact that Singaporean photographs started appearing in Photograms of the Year by the 50s is quite significant and it's, it's um, not really documented or talked about much. So Ripple Reflection, which is also in the National Collection, um, was one of these works that was reproduced in London. So coming back to Singapore, so like I said, he joined the Singapore Camera Club and through the Singapore Camera Club, he met a lot of what we now call our pioneer photographers. Um, and this included people like Uping, Uping Singh, whose work we saw in the previous slide, um, and Chua Subin. And these friends that he made through the society helped him set up his own photographic studio. So they became silent partners in um, a brand new studio called, very simply, Number One Tiong Baru, because it was at Number One Tiong Baru Road. Um, and the, the studio was set up in 1956. And the um, silent partners were Uping Singh, Chua Subin, and Ho Tat Singh as well as one other photographer who I haven't been able to get any information on. Um, so just to pre a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about today is the research I've been doing in the last year and a half. So there are a few gaps here and there as I you know, try to get the information. Um, and this particular studio, number one, Tiong Baru, um, became almost like a second clubhouse. So, you know, like with the Singapore Camera Club has, had its own clubhouse where members gathered. But informally, um, a lot of photographers would also go hang out at number one, Tiong Baru, where Lilim was. And the fact that Lilim was a full-time um, studio photographer who had access to a dark room and all the chemicals and paper and so on allowed him to do a lot of experimentation. So um, when I look at Lilim's work, like his entire body of work, I kind of split it up into three phases. The first phase being the kind of work that he did in the 50s, which were quite typical pictorial looking work. So um, a lot of focus on form, patterns, lines, composition, tonal range, like very... Um, there was a, a very, I guess, conscious emphasis on beauty through balance and harmony and, and these kinds of uh, aspects. However, his second phase of work are these composite photos that you see um, on the left of this hang. And when I talk to um, other photographers of the generation, so Lilim has passed away, so I'm not able to speak to Lilim, but I can speak to the people who knew him. And a lot of them say that the reason that he's able to make these works is because he had access to the dark room all the time, like 24 hours he could be there kind of, you know, um, making these composite photos. Um, whereas for a lot of them who are not professional photographers, even if they wanted to do something like this, they just didn't have the time and the access. So when I talk about composite photos, I hope um, it's 
maybe it's not so obvious, but okay, the first photo, which is the kind of um, almost scroll-like format of the kampong scene, that's a straight photo, meaning that that's a scene that he took and then he did the seal and then he, he wrote um, the, the text on the top left hand. But the two photos next to it are composite photos, meaning that they were made out of at least four negatives in this case. So Lilim was a master at combining different negatives to make an image. So these two images you see are not like a natural kampong scene. So um, for example, the top one, the, 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 the horizon where the little um, uh, structures are would have been one photo. The palm trees in the front would have been a, a different photo. The birds would have been a different photo. And the kind of um, ducks floating in the water would have been yet another photo. So when I was talking and, and looking at this with some of the other older photographers, um, they, to their eye, they said that it would have been at least four negatives, maybe five, we're not sure, because his technique was so good that you, you really can't tell where the stitching is. So kind of, so composite photo for the younger members of the audience who have never worked with film, it's like basically Photoshop in the darkroom. And it was way more difficult because you can't just see it, right? And that's why they talk about how access to the darkroom was so important because Lilim could try and try and try and try until he got the photo he wanted. The one below that, the bigger print is similarly a composite photo. So again, um, the human figure would have been one negative, the tree branches, another negative, um, the structures on the right, a third negative, and perhaps even the clouds, a fourth negative. And putting in clouds was a very common thing for the photographers because you wanted to have like perfect looking clouds, which you don't necessarily get when you take a photo. So they would just have stock image but not a digital stock image, but like these elements that they would keep from um, previous photo excursions and then add them into um, the photos. So in the, in the 60s and the 70s, Lilim made a lot of composite photos and he became known as sort of a master technician in making composite photos. Um, and for those of you who are familiar with Asian photography, you immediately will see that the photos look very similar to Long Ting San's work. So Long Ting San was um, a Chinese photographer who also made this type of composite photos that um, had a very uh, Chinese ink painting kind of aesthetic to it. And Lilim um, was definitely influenced by Long Ting San. And Long Ting San came to Singapore. And a lot of people actually, I think this, this is missing from a lot of histories. Like Long Ting San came to Singapore in 1965 and had an exhibition in Singapore at the Chinese Chamber of Commerce where he would have shown these works and the Singaporean photographers would have seen them. Um, but even though Lilim wasn't the only one who experimented with these sorts of composite photos, in my opinion, he was um, the best at, at doing so. And I think also when you look at them, I mean, for people who are familiar with Long Ting San's work, it's very easy to just say, oh, Lilin was just copying. Um, and, and like, what's so important about a photographer like that? Basically, he, yes, his technique was great, um, but he was just copying um, another Chinese photographer's style and aesthetic. And that's why um, I was really glad that the curators for this show um, decided to show kind of the last phase of his practice, which are these abstract 
coloured work because I think what these two works demonstrate is that Lilim was not just copying Long Ching San but really thinking through um, a certain kind of photographic aesthetic through his practice. Um, so I think um, Shu Jian was, was saying that quite a few people was asking how these were made, like a few docents and visitors, but they are actually, unlike the composite photos, they are not manipulated or doctored because everyone thought that they were like, you know, dark room kind of magic. But it's actually an entire series of work where Lilim went around Singapore shooting walls, exterior walls of buildings. That's it. And these walls had, you know, marks on it, age, like um, peeling paint, or some, some of the pictures have moss on the walls and so on. So he basically shot them on coloured slide. And because he shot them on coloured slide, you can... I mean, there is dark room processing involved in the, in the sense that he was manipulating some of the colours that finally emerged in the print. But it wasn't sort of layering of negatives or anything like that, the way he did um, the earlier work. And he made, I think we, or, or rather I've seen about 25 examples of this type of work. And he made them in the 80s, towards the end of his life. Um, and he was planning a solo exhibition of the work, but he died very suddenly in 89. Um, and he never got to exhibit them. So the works have never been exhibited, like this body of works have never been exhibited. But they have been reproduced in a few books. So he actually took out some examples um, and added into some of the kind of books um, that featured photography from Singapore and that they were published um, in the late 80s. But you can see from the abstract kind of coloured work that he's still thinking about the idea of San Shui Hua. Like there's still this conscious attempt to depict a landscape. There's still a very um, large concern about beauty and nature, but just through these very, very abstract shapes. So, you know, you, like, you can almost imagine that that's a lake or that's a mountain and, and so on. Um, and it, it's actually quite a pity that we don't know where he would have let on from these works because he passed away kind of in the middle of um, still shooting this body of work. Um, but I think for us, it's, it's really interesting because a lot of people, I think, have a certain impression of pictorial photographs in Singapore. Pictorial photo photographers in Singapore is very old-fashioned, very sentimental. Um, sort of they think of the works in the vein of what you see in Ripple and Ripple Reflection, which was made in 56, not realizing that some of the photographers actually went on to develop their ideas in other kinds of work. So coming back to the earlier years, um, Lilim was also uh, an associate and fellow of the Royal Photographic Society. And I mentioned that because it's something that I will keep coming to um, in this talk, the idea of Singapore's connection with London. And the Royal Photographic Society was kind of the main photographic body in the UK. And they gave, I guess, these accreditations. And the lower accreditation was associateship. And the higher accreditation was fellowship. And what a photographer had to do was for the associateship, they would submit 12 prints to London and a jury would assess the prints um, and you had to pass the exam, um, meaning that the jury had to accept at least 10 prints of the 12 and if they accept and give you the stamp of approval, you become an associate. And that's where 
um, in the even in the 80s and 90s, you see that it was very trendy for photographers to have like ARPS after their name in brackets. That's what it was, Associate of the Royal Photographic Society. So Lilim got his associate in, I think, 56. Yes, he got his associateship in 56. And then he applied for his fellowship in 59. And I and I pulled up this article because the title of the article is very um, a good example of how the, the journalists were writing about photography in those times, which is they gave these very exaggerated headlines like a Singapore expert shakes the photo world. Um, so it was basically an article. So I didn't put in the text, but it was an article about Lilim getting his um, fellowship in 59. Um, and I pulled it up also because I wanted to kind of emphasize that even though now we don't really think or talk about photography in the 50s and 60s, in the 50s and 60s itself, it was a huge deal. Anytime a photographer got an associateship or a fellowship, even in, especially in the 50s, they would like really announce it in the national newspapers, including sometimes even putting a photo of the photographer, like a portrait shot and go like so-and-so um, awarded a fellowship of RPS or Singapore, blah, blah, blah. So it became, you know, they were very proud of it, like even the national papers. So this particular article also included a reproduction of one of Lilim's work. So this is again another example of his early work where, I, like I was saying, was kind of more sentimental, like typical pictorial photography that you would think about from the period. So in addition to talking about photographers, I wanted to talk a bit about the exhibitions because the exhibitions were a very important part of the development of pictorial photography from the period. And I chose this exhibition because obviously uh, that particular work was featured in the show. So this is the catalogue. It's in our, our resource centre had have a lot of these um, old catalogues from the 50s and 60s. And this was the Singapore and Pan-Malaysian photo exhibition from 1965 where that work was exhibited and it was chosen as the cover um, of this particular catalogue. So the... The Singapore and Pan-Malaysian Photographic Exhibition was one of many annual salon exhibitions held in Singapore by one of many photographic societies in Singapore. So there were like many annual exhibitions um, and the, these exhibitions were always organised and managed by the photo society. So it's all volunteer basis because they didn't have an academy like the painters. So it's all, you know, amateur self-taught and volunteers. Um, so work volunteering at the society and managing exhibitions and so on. So this particular exhibition is quite interesting and I wanted to briefly um, read out some of the, the speeches and forwards in the catalogue itself. So the exhibition was held um, from the 22nd to the 24th of October. So it's three days only uh, and this was very normal for a lot of exhibitions. They put in like months of effort for like a three-day show. Um, 491 prints were submitted from Singapore, Malaysia, Brunei and Thailand and 216 prints were accepted. That's less than half. So your chances when you submit a photo for the show, you get like a 40% chance of being selected. And there were 349 colour slides submitted, 143 were accepted. And I'll just like briefly uh, spend two minutes telling you about colour slides because this is something that I discovered last year that like I was very intrigued by. So it's very easy to understand when you submit a print for a show, like monochrome prints, which are black and white silver gelatin prints. So you submit it 
um, to the salon, then the judges sit down and they judge in public, by the way. So like the, the judges sit in a row and then the assistant puts the prints in front of them and there's like, it's like America's Got Talent where you have the buzzer. So they have red, green and yellow buzzers. Then the photo will come up and then if the judges say, okay, good, it's accepted, they press the green buzzer in public. If it's really bad, they press the red buzzer and if they're undecided, they press the yellow buzzer and then it kind of goes through again. For slides, because colour prints were so expensive to make in the 50s and 60s, um, in Singapore particularly, very few people made colour prints. In Hong Kong, the photographers, um, I think, had a bit more money because they were submitting colour prints. But in Singapore, they would submit colour slides. So if you were a photographer working in colour, you made colour slides. And it's those little 35mm slides with the um, cardboard border. And those are the works that you send to a salon. Like, so if you go to, if you want to participate in a London salon, you send that little slide. And during the judging process, they'll put up a carousel, a slide carousel, and they'll put all the entries into the carousel and they just go click, click, click. And the judges have like two seconds to look at the work and quickly um, press their buzzer and then it moves on. So it's interesting to me because it's like the slides, the work only existed in a slide form and you could only see it, like you, the, you're not judging based on like a light box and you're looking at the slide, right? You're judging it based on projection, which would have changed the colour depending on the quality of the slide projector, the lighting in the room and so on. And one of the photographers I spoke to said that, you know, that's why when you work in colour slide, your work has to be super um, kind of spectacular because they just, it just disappears after that. So you need a subject matter that will grab the attention of the judges. But then for the audience, like the regular people who want to see the exhibition, obviously you go to the exhibition and you can see the black and white prints on the wall. How do you see the colour slides? What they did was they had these um, colour slide nights, colour slide nights, and that's a quote, where they will say that, okay, colour slide presentation is at 7pm tonight in the British Council Hall. So everyone comes at 7 o'clock. And apparently it was very well received because um, I find reports that said that, you know, standing room only, full house, etc. And everyone sits and watches the colour slide. So the colour slide presentation was like an exhibition to, in addition to the monochrome exhibition. Yeah, which for me as a curator, I think was really interesting because I'm like, oh, if I want to show these colour slides, how do I show it now? Like, do I, do I print it out to let the gallery visitors see them? Or where am I going to find a slide projector to, to show the work. And of course, digitizing it changes the color of the work and the materiality of the work as well. So that's something that you know, I've been thinking about uh, um, in terms of future shows. But coming back to this particular um, exhibition, uh, the, so Lilim's work was one of seven gold medal winners. So that particular work. Although this was not the work that went to this exhibition, um, they made multiple prints, so this one went to other salons. Um, and Othman Wok, who was the Minister for Culture and Social Affairs, opened the exhibition and he also wrote a foreword in the catalogue. And I'm going to just read a bit um, of the foreword and the speech. So I quote, Your members have made a name for this country in international and national exhibitions. I have no doubt that they will continue to win new honours for our country. Your 13th Singapore and Pan-Malaysian exhibition has once again promoted a common bond uniting the countries participating in this exhibition. Photography transcends barriers of language, geography, politics, and landscape. 
This, by the way, was October 1965, just after Singapore left Malaysia. And it's quite interesting to me that they are then talking about how photography can transcend barriers of language, politics, geography, and so on, because the show was, of course, open to Malaysian photographers. Othman Wok also said this in the opening speech um, of the exhibition, so the speeches are held at the National Archives. Photography not only allows you to record a subject in its natural surroundings, to a certain degree it also permits the camera artist to interpret the scene as he thinks fit. In this way, others can share the impression with you. The value is that the impression is individualistic and personal. It is artistic expression at its best. Photography is an art worthy of mastery, and our increasing number of camera artists can do much to enrich Singapore's cultural heritage. So I wanted to read these two sort of short snippets um, and speak about the exhibition because I think they reveal kind of two key points about photography in Singapore in that period. The first is that amateur photography was increasingly popular in the 50s and the 60s. The Pan Malayan was, like I said, only one of several exhibitions. So there was the main exhibition, which was the Singapore International Salon. Um, and that was organized by the Singapore Camera Club, who also organizes the Pan Malayan. And the Singapore Camera Club was the one that was subsequently renamed the Photographic Society of Singapore, and they still exist at Saligi Road. Um, the Southeast Asia Photographic Society was founded in 58 and started a biannual International Pictorial Photography Exhibition. The Photo Art Association was formed in 64 and organized the Photo Art Festival. The Singapore Colour Photographic Society was formed in 1967 and started organizing the International Salon of Colour Photography. So there were like, you know, societies kind of um, getting founded through the 50s and the 60s and every society had their own um, photo salon. The second implication from, I think, uh, we can see from this exhibition is that photography was increasingly being implicated into nationalist discourses. And you can see that very clearly when you read um, the different uh, forwards in the catalogues and if you go through the speeches by the various ministers. So the, this period, of course, coincided with Singapore's most active nation-building years. I mean, what with um, self-governance in 59, um, the merger of Malaysia in 63, and then, you know, Singapore's separation in 65. So it's important, I think, um, especially when we look at works on the wall that are so divorced from social context that we understand that what, what social context was happening at that time. And for me, it's particularly important because the works are so formal in nature. Like, you know, the photographers seem so concerned with things like composition, balance, expression, beauty, that you don't see it as associated with um, kind of social concerns. But a very simple illustration is just this pan-Malaysian exhibition, just the naming. So in 53, when the exhibition first started, it was the pan-Malayan photographic exhibition. In 60... That was 53, sorry. It was the pan-Malayan. In 63, when Singapore joined Malaysia, it became the pan-Malaysian photographic exhibition. In 65, it became the Singapore and Pan-Malaysian Photographic Exhibition. In 69, it became just the Singapore National Exhibition because this was in honour of the 150th anniversary of the founding of Singapore, which is like kind of strange. But if you guys know, next year is the bicentennial and we're going to have a, a lot of these sort of events as well. And finally, it was the final rename was in 1978 as the ASEAN Salon of Photography as Singapore was trying to, I think, um, 
position itself as a leader within this particular region. Um, and also from the speeches, the rhetoric about photography as a universal language um, was very important in kind of this framing of photography within nationalist um, discourses. So at this point, I'm just going to stop talking a bit about Lilim and his work on the exhibition and give you guys a bit of background about um, pictorialism in case like, you're not so familiar with it. So pictorialism was a photographic movement that developed in Europe in the late 19th century. Um, and I've put up sort of two uh, examples of what the works look like so that you have an idea. So that first work is Edward Sturgeon's um, Flat Iron, very, very famous uh, pictorial photograph. And this is Frederick Evans' A Sea of Steps. Um, Frederick Evans is one of my favorite British photographers, and so he was also a very prominent member of this pictorial movement. Um, so pictorialism in the, 19th, the late 19th century really developed in reaction to um, the, I guess, the technology, the photographic technology that was developing then that was making photography a lot easier for everyone to do. Um, so a lot of photographers kind of responded and wanted to make um, photography distinct as, a, as an artistic practice compared to photography as a form of recording. So uh, uh, um, a picture versus a record, and that's the, the language they used. And, these, and uh, this is, I guess, a reference to the title of today's talk, Pictorialism is Dead, because by the 1920s, um, attention had moved away from pictorialism as a movement. Um, and attention had shifted to sort of uh, different developments such as um, American modernism or German new objectivity. So pictorialism was seen as like kind of no longer an avant-garde movement. But at the same time, if you look at Southeast Asia, pictorialism was the main form of photographic practice um, in both pre- and post-war. And it's not just Singapore, it was in Indonesia, it was in Thailand, um, Hong Kong as well. So why, why was pictorialism, or why did pictorialism have such a big influence and legacy um, in Southeast Asia way past its heyday in Europe and America? And that's a question that, that interests me a lot as well. So in terms of trying to tackle this, um, what I think we need to do is really look at how photography developed in Singapore from the 19th century. And I'll just go through this really quickly. Um, so in Singapore, photography actually uh, appeared very early on. So two years after the daguerreotype was developed um, or announced in Paris, two years later, someone was taking photos in Singapore already. Um, and Singapore also saw a lot of European photographers like setting up studios and all in Singapore. And of course, these studios, so these are kind of the works that the European studios were producing. And you'll see some of that in the Singapore gallery as well. Um, were really, you know, kind of views and types of Southeast Asia. A lot, it was basically for a tourist market. But the important thing is the presence of the studios allowed for kind of a transfer of photographic knowledge. And these were European studios. What I think was even more important are the Chinese studios, of which research is actually only slowly starting to um, be done on them. So in addition to the European studios, a lot of Chinese and Japanese studios were set up in Singapore as well. And even though um, apprentices were kind of limited to uh, family members or people from the same village or the same dialect group, 
it still allowed for a transfer of photographic knowledge from the 19th century to the mid-20th century. And um, so basically for me, there are two strands of development. The first is the photographic studios, which allowed for transfer of technological skills. But the second um, kind of main strand of development is the photo societies. So we all, I think, are very familiar, or rather the people who are researching the area are very familiar with the post-war sort of Singapore Photography Society and so on. But in the past year, when digging through kind of newspaper archives, I found records of earlier photographic societies that no one's actually written about or spoken about. So in 1921, there were two photographic societies, M Malayan Camera Club and the Singapore Camera Club, not related to the later Singapore Camera Club in 1950. And the Malayan Camera Club was run by Europeans, like for European amateur photographers, and run very much in the style of the British um, Royal Photographic Society. And the Singapore Camera Club was founded by Japanese studio photographers. Um, but they had an annual exhibition, like an annual photographic exhibition that was open to anyone, not just Japanese professionals. So it was open to locals as well um, and open to amateurs. And in the kind of newspaper records, when you read about these exhibitions, um, what's very interesting is they start talking about pictorial photography, artistic photography, and, and the two kind of societies, I think, really played a very big role in the development of us thinking about photography as, as art, or rather for people from the 20s and 30s to start thinking of photography as art. But for me, the most interesting um, exhibition is 1935 and it's interesting because it's the only exhibition we can find reproductions and we can only find it because for some reason the Straits Times decided to reproduce certain works from the exhibition in um, the newspaper and 1935 was an exhibition called the Overseas Chinese Photography Exhibition which was open to overseas Chinese in the region and um, sorry the Quality isn't great because it's from newspapers.sg, which has the watermark. But I pulled up a close-up of one of these photos because the photos show very clearly, like they illustrate very clearly that it is artistic photography that we're talking about. It's not studio photography, it's not commercial photography, it's not record photography, but that these um, overseas Chinese who are taking part in, this, in the exhibition were thinking about composition, about... Um, lighting and this is almost really like a still life like you, you can you can tell that the concerns are very different from studio photography concerns which was you know the other kind of mean um, practice of photography and the other very interesting thing about this exhibition is they had a catalog and unfortunately I cannot find a catalog anywhere but I'm still looking but there was a little write-up in one of the newspapers that talked about the catalogue. And in the catalogue, there were essays, which is very unusual for 1935. And one of the essays um, by Dr. Chia Bun Leong had the title Pictures versus Records. And that, for people who are familiar with kind of photography discussions from the early 20th century, is very significant because of this idea of art versus record and pictures versus records. So pictures being artistic use of the medium and records being um, util utilitarian uses of the medium. So, you know, you start seeing this understanding of photography as an artwork as early as the 20s and the 30s. Like, it, it didn't just appear um, in the 
fifties, which you know, which is I, I guess a lot more well documented. So by the nineteen fifties, um, the Singapore Art Society was uh, founded in nineteen forty nine. In nineteen fifty, we see the first um, Singapore Open Photographic Exhibition, and this series was. I feel the most important photographic exhibition series that subsequently played a huge role in determining the development of pictorial photography in Singapore. Um, and why do I say that? The, this was basically the, the only platform at that time for open call photography. And open call meaning, you know, they, the Singapore Art Society made an open call. Anyone could submit, get their work selected and shown. And these are kind of the works that were being shown or, or had been selected for the show. And you see this um, very clear, uh, again, aesthetic concern from the pictures in the catalogue. And, and something that I do want to highlight are the people involved in the exhibition. So the jury for the exhibition was Gibson Hill, Carl Gibson Hill, Lok Wan To, whose portrait is at the beginning of the gallery, and Richard Walker, who was the art superintendent. So these were people all very familiar with painting. And so, I mean, I argue that the relationship between photography and painting was actually quite close um, in this period. And it influenced a lot of the thinking and the aesthetics of photography subsequently. You've been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. And to learn more about our programs at the gallery, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chiakasim and Tamaris Go. And the music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening. <laughs>